Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Are you excited? Yeah, excited, nervous, not a huge ocean person. This is facing a fair day. Nice, good for you. So you've just come out of the water from snorkeling. How was it? Good. Was that your first time? Um, my second time. So what kind of things did you see? Um, crayfish and lots of fish and lots of seaweed. Kia ora, no mai, haere mai. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kincana naho. Two stories today on the theme of the double benefits of conservation projects. Good for native species and good for humans too. Later we'll hear about a Jobs for Nature project along the west coast of the South Island, aimed at improving the situation for threatened native freshwater fish. But first, in January I visited a friend in Wellington and one morning tagged along with him to a community snorkel at the Taputaranga Marine Reserve. But once I got there, saw the hundreds of people lined up to get involved, and felt the general buzz and excitement, I couldn't help but whip out my microphones to ask some questions and find out a bit more. The group behind this event are Mountains to Sea Wellington, and fresh from my own snorkeling experience, I found a perch on a log on the beach and had a chat with executive director and co-founder Zoe Studd. In its essence, our ambition is to connect people with nature, so to act as a tinder for nature, so to help connect people with tutaiao and with the environment, and to develop that sense of um, kaitiakitanga or guardianship, um, so that they are aware of what's under there, often we're not, as aware of what's in our backyard um, as we could be. That's for us as our sort of primary aim. We want people to make those connections and from there we hope to encourage and inspire them to be able to take action. And we work in the marine environment with this programme experiencing marine reserves and all the community snorkel days. Those are all part of that, of that work and that's part of a national programme. Um, and then we do freshwater work as well, so the Whitebait Connection Project, which looks at the health of rivers and streams and wetlands. And then more recently, quite a bit of work looking into our seaweed forests and exploring you know, the, the amazing variety and the incredibly important ecological function that seaweeds play um, in maintaining biodiversity and the health of our ocean systems as well. And then we also support um, a range of different restoration projects and community groups and citizen science work as well. So we're busy. Yeah. <laughs> we're that busy, but we love it. I guess Mountains to Sea does encompass everything. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> that if you're going to do lots of stuff, make sure you've got a really broad name. There is a great buzz around today. Mm. What's the goal of this kind of day? So we run six of these and five of those six are completely free and the purpose really is to invite people down who might otherwise never get the opportunity to come and have this kind of experience and that goes back to this, you know, wanting to connect and inspire people about what's in their local environment 
and many people don't have the gear or they feel a bit worried about the ocean or a bit fearful or they want someone to be able to support them when they have those those first experiences and because we have these amazing volunteer guides and um, and this incredible marine reserve on our doorstep it's something that we can do to give people that opportunity and remove that barrier uh, and it is a huge amount of fun so this is our first of our six that we'll be holding over the summer that's one of my favorite times of year and yeah people love it we get this wonderful energy and excitement and you get people coming out who've never snorkeled before and suddenly they've you know discovered this completely new world on their doorstep which we love yeah so that's why we do it my friend and i joined a small queue at island bay early on but it quickly filled out and across the day, over 250 people registered for sessions and kept the snorkel guide volunteers super busy. And there was a whole range of people there, from young kids to older adults, with some indeed dipping their toes for the very first time. What's your name? My name is Myra Tegmillan. And have you snorkeled before? No, no, I've never been snorkeling, but um, my friends let me know that this is happening, so we just thought it'd be a cool thing to come along and check out. But yeah. What are you hoping to see? Everything, really. Um, no, there's some really cool stuff. They've got like a whole um, board of all of the marine life that you could see, so just anything. Super excited for it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Have a good time. Thank you. Thank you. There are 44 marine reserves across Aotearoa, New Zealand. But I guess they are a bit different to your local tramping trail, wetland boardwalk or track through a forest. You do need gear to be able to see the abundance of life and diversity under the water to be able to appreciate it in the same way you would a multi-layered green piece of bush with birds flittering by. The Taputaranga Marine Reserve runs from just west of Ofiro Bay to east of Princess Bay. 854 hectares of protected coastal waters six kilometres from Wellington city centre. Zoe tells me a bit more about it. The Marine Reserve was established in 2008, so it's been here for 14 years. And two very special people who passed this year actually were involved in that process, Colin Ryder and Murray Hoskins, and uh, they formed a group called the Friends of Tapitaranga Marine Reserve, and they campaigned for many years. It was through their passion and other people that this Marine Reserve came to be, um, with some negotiations along the way. And we began the year that the Marine Reserve was established and every year you just see these these changes and a real sense of, I think, community pride and ownership in it as well. Um, so, yeah, as you'll have seen, because you'll have been out there snorkeling today, it's really turning into something spectacular and we're really lucky there's no other cities in, in New Zealand that have a Marine Reserve on their doorstep in this way. Yeah, it was real cool, actually. Yeah. It's really beautiful oh, in there. It's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? And there's, there's so many fish and some really big power. Yeah, the power are kind of, I think, the first thing that we noticed changing in the marine reserve. They were way closer, they were much bigger. Um, and then crayfish, I think, started to be the next one. They started to just sneak in a little bit closer to shore, be a little bit more confident, come out during the daytime, not hide away from divers. And then blue mookie, did you see the big blue mookie out there? Yeah, so the big resident blue mookie now that just hang out right in the shallows. What else did you spot out there? My fish identification isn't 
on point, but oh, yeah. definitely some blue cod. Cool, yeah. And some littler fish with a kind of a dark patch on them. Like sort of small like that with a little spot on the side? Yeah. Spotties. Spotties. Yeah, yeah. I know, the complex naming of fishes. <laughs> Sometimes um, if you look at it and you're like, it was big and blue, and you're like, yeah, that's a blue mookie. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's cool. Who did you go out with? Who was your guide? We went with Jasper. Oh, he's fantastic. Jasper's been volunteering with us, I don't know, four or five years. So he comes to most of our community snorkel events. Yeah, we have a really cool group of long-standing volunteers who come and do this, and they're amazing. You just put them on, the flippers, and then you walk backwards into the water. Or you can go into the water and kind of like sit and float and put them on, but I find this way is the easiest. Hey, I'm Jossie Falcon, and I'm a volunteer with Mounds to Sea. What kind of volunteer work do you do? So I normally am like a snorkel guide, so on community days I'll take groups of adults and people who just want to come, and on weekdays we take kids and like school kids out, but with school kids it's like a whole learning experience. And here we're just trying to foster a love of the ocean so people get excited about marine conservation. So you're here on your free time. This yeah. is you giving up your time to do yeah, this. Yeah, I actually take off work Saturdays to do it. But I love getting out in the water and just seeing how excited people get to, you know, experience like snorkeling for the first time. And so you have a love of snorkeling yourself? I didn't until I came out here because I, I don't really like cold water because where I'm from, like, the water's warm, so I didn't really even swim in Wellington until I came out. But then you see the fish, and you see all the beautiful, like, seaweed and things, and, like, how big crayfish are, and, like, how natural everything can be in, like, marine reserves, and it just makes you excited, or most people, at least. Thumbs down, yeah. And then I'll help you guys once we're out there. Easy. Yeah. You guys look suited up and ready? Maybe we'll even get on the radio. Who knows? <laughs> What do you see as the benefits of having a marine reserve such as this? I think there's a huge range. So there's obviously a benefit to the biodiversity within the marine reserve. Um, and you see that bounce back. Um, for local fishers, you know, they will talk about uh, the spillover effect. So as the reserve fills up and becomes more abundant, you get this spillover effect into surrounding areas, which can improve some of the fisheries around the edges of the marine reserve, as long as they're not too heavily um, targeted. Uh, it's an amazing place for research as well, so it allows us to see how a marine environment responds when it's when those external pressures are taken, well, fishing pressures are, are taken off, um, and that allows for a balance to return to the system. Now, Wellington and, and the South Coast is an interesting case because we do have you know major stormwater and water quality issues, and they will have ongoing impacts onto the marine reserve. There's not much we can do about those short term. But yes, aside from that, you get the opportunity to see what some of that natural balance is when it returns. And one of the things that is really noticeable is the return of um, you know, seaweed diversity back into the marine reserve. And that's just getting the balance of those larger predators back into the system as well. They keep kind of numbers down and that allows that biodiversity and, and seaweeds to be able to establish and flourish as well. Um, and then, of course, there's just, you know, the enjoyment of being able to go out snorkelling and see things. So there's lots of places in New Zealand you go snorkelling and there's not much to see. And there's not much to see because those top predators are being lost and kind of end up sort of clear grazing out a lot of the seaweed habitat and then you lose all the other fish and associated biodiversity as well. And for myself, 
just being able to swim out and sort of float on top of a seaweed forest is, is a pretty nice way to spend some time. I also think, you know, whether we're aware of it or not, the impact on our own just health and well-being, you know, when you've had a swim in the ocean and you've had those experiences is, is quite marked, you know. Changes your perspective for the day. Thanks to Zoe Studd, Executive Director of Mountains to Sea Wellington. Thanks also to Myra, Cathy and Capri for talking to me about their snorkelling experiences, as well as volunteers Josie, Vikrant and my own snorkel guide Jasper. Our next story is also about that double benefit. Creating a green space just outside a town for people to enjoy and be able to walk and cycle through, but also to give some housing for some special locals who are in trouble. Yeah, so there's a white bait just there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tiny. Yeah. yeah. After white bait season, when the inanga have grown into adult fish, even in this little short bit that we've done, in the three years, this will have big shoals of adult inanga in it. So, yeah, it's very quick to see animals taking advantage of the habitat we've created. I'm checking out the very finest, specially designed Inanga Accommodation, located just outside Hokitika on the South Island's west coast. And my guide today is Tim. So I'm Tim Shaw, I work for the Department of Conservation in Hokitika, and I'm helping delivery of part of a Jobs for Nature project on the banks of the Hokitika River. It's not been a long hike for us to get here. From the dock office, you take the footpath under the State Highway 6 bridge that crosses the Hokitika River. First, we climb up onto the verge of the highway so that we can see across the whole area involved in this project. Known as Wadeson Island, it's 16 to 18 hectares between the main State Highway 6 bridge through to the dairy factory that stands on the true right of the Hokitika River. So although this area's got heaps of biodiversity potential in terms of what we can do here, it's also really important to Hokitika as a green space and a recreational area. So what we're trying to do here is a bit of both, really make the most of it, really. This work is just part of a full Jobs for Nature project called the West Coast Sustainable Wild Whitebait Fisheries Project. Project lead Taylor Blythe from the West Coast Regional Council says that while Wadeson Island will be the jewel in the crown, there is other work going on too. One part of the project is focused on Wadeson Island, which is planned to be a whitebait sanctuary and sort of a showcase for Hokitika. The project also includes weeding and fencing across the West Coast and fish passage assessments. Everything is aimed at improving the lot of the native whitebait species because on the West Coast, whitebaiting is more than a hobby or a business. It's a tradition, a built-in part of life for many. I mean, everyone here sort of grew up white baiting with the granddad sort of thing and then obviously it's a it's a part of the regional economy. White bait are the juveniles of native inanga, koaro and banded giant and short jaw kokopu species. They are harvested as they return from the ocean to migrate back up streams and rivers where they grow to adult stage. But their numbers are declining. They are in big trouble. Like declining to threatened to risk of extinction trouble. And this is because they get hit along all stages of their life cycles. The draining of wetlands and clearing of vegetation beside streams has hit the habitat they need. 
High pollution and sedimentation and introduced plants disrupt the clean water and healthy waterways that they need. Barriers like culverts and dams block their way on their migrations. And introduced fish like perch and trout compete for their habitat and also eat them. Plus, every season, a whole heap of the juveniles get fished by white-baiters. Though the impact of this is hard to know. Mostly because they're just getting hit so hard from every side that it's difficult to figure out if they weren't fished, would they even have survived upstream? Setting this up, I've kind of talked to landowners and locals and white baiters up and down the coast and, and everyone you know, remembers that there were a lot more sort of back in the day than there are now. Um, the docs confirmed that with the data that they've gathered. So the populations of white bait are absolutely decreasing. And of course, it'll be a mixture of habitat, um, harvest and water quality issues. I mean, everyone's sort of got their own opinion on why numbers are decreasing. But yeah, at the end of the day, by improving habitat, it'll improve the situation from anyone's point of view. So this project involves making luxury accommodation for adult inanga near Hokitika, but also looking at habitat and fish passage along the coast. The weeding is mostly focused on removing willows. This is to allow grasses to grow and provide more habitat for whitebait to spawn. And Doc have identified a number of whitebait spawning sites down the west coast from Karamea down to South Westland. And then alongside that weeding work is 13 kilometres of fencing to be put in, which is to exclude stock from waterways and improve the breeding habitat for whitebait. And then finally, we're planning to assess 1,500 culverts and bridges throughout the coast to find out how many of them are impeding the passage of native migratory fish, which will inform future work and it will kind of tell us how important it is to have that culvert remedied. Some of them might not even need to be looked at again, you know, especially kind of wide-span bridges, but small culverts with high flow in the future, they will need some sort of work, whether that's baffles or sort of muscle ropes being put in there to break up the flow a little bit and provide a, a little bit of um, structure that the fish can climb up. Back at Wadeson Island, from our vantage point overlooking the area, you can see a stormwater drain come creek channel that's running alongside, which, Tim says, is useful to some extent for the inanga. There's plenty of habitat here, ironically, for them to spawn, because we're right, this is about another 100 yards up here is about as far as the salt water gets, you know, from the estuary, and this rank grass that's here existing at the top of the tidal influence is where they spawn. So there's actually quite a lot of good spawning habitat here, but there's nowhere for the adult fish to live because when the tide goes out, this channel, because it's maintained for stormwater, has a pretty bare bottom and it has no um, vegetation on the side for them to be protected in. So they all get slaughtered by the white heron and everything else that wants to eat them. Mm. So what we want to do is create channel alongside the stormwater drain which doesn't have to perform a stormwater function, and, and that's, that's the habitat where the adult fish will live. So that's what we're trying to do here. So yeah, it's a matter of getting big excavators in here 
and just and I'll show you that as we go through the channel that we've created so far. This project, Tim says, has been trying to get off the ground for quite a while. It started prior to 2000 as a millennium project led by the council to turn this area into a recreational green space, with Doc helping on the vegetation side of things. A track got put in and trees got planted, but resources tapered off. In 2013, the Western Dairy Company gave some support to dig the first channel to provide Inanga habitat. But again, neither they nor Doc had the capacity to have a proper go of it. And Conservation Volunteers New Zealand got on board to help as they could. So the big thing it needed was an injection of cash so we could actually pay someone to work down here. And that's what the Jobs for Nature money is allowing us to do. So yeah, the ideas here have been around a long time. And we've picked off bits and pieces and made some progress, but yeah, it's really exciting that we've got funding for until 2023 to have three people working down here full time. Tim and I stroll down from the edge of State Highway 6 to have a look at the very first channel that was dug. Water flows around lazily, grass has grown up around the edges, and we lean over to try spot the Inanga that have already moved in. So you've, you've seen shoals of Inanga? Yeah, in yeah, this. yeah, for sure. Oh. So they're, they're using this area already. And the idea is to create one steep side. So on the far bank, we've got basically a vertical um, bank, mm-hmm. which goes to a deep point, like a wedge. And then on the other side, we've maintained a more shallow oh, gradient. A bit more shallow here, yeah. yeah. So that gives, at, when the tide's at its lowest, they've got, when it's hot, They've got a deep point where they can go and sit in cooler water, and then when it's spawning time, this is kind of be this will be spawning habitat. Inanga are the most abundant species in whitebait catch. As adults, they grow to 11 centimeters in length, the smallest of the migratory galaxids. They're beautiful little fish, slim with silvery bellies and speckled greeny brown backs. They hang out in shoals and feed on insects and live in slow-moving lowland freshwater habitats. So they don't make the same long-distance inland journeys that some of the other species do, those that are bigger and stronger at swimming and climbing. And, as Tim alluded to, as part of their crazy cool life cycle, Inanga will move downstream to where freshwater meets seawater and choose a high spring tide to wriggle their way into dense vegetation at the edge of waterways to lay their eggs. Plants protect the eggs from the sun and predators where they sit until the water from the next spring tide stimulates them to hatch and the larvae are carried downstream to the sea. So here in Waitson Island, the plan is to create habitat for all their needs, for the adult shoals to hang out in and feed, and also to provide perfect spawning space with the right dense vegetation. With Conservation Volunteers NZ, CVNZ, they got a bit of money to start work on a second channel last year. So this is stage two. So you can see we cut a channel to there. So the idea was just to pick it off in chunks. So yeah, put a culvert in here, let more water in. And this is the bit of channel that CVNZ have developed over the last six months. And this planting's about three months old. Yeah, it does look very new. Yeah, yeah. So if we walk to the end, you'll see the limit of it, and then you'll see where we'll take it next. It's a stark contrast to the one that had been dug before, in terms of the banks being all muddy, and I can see how the Igana would be uh, easy targets for birds in there. Yeah, at the moment, when we first do it, there is going to be a period where we're probably setting them up for a fall, 
Yeah, I haven't turned on the white heron for you today, but there's usually a couple marching around here thanking us for the buffet we're putting on. But, says Tim, give it time. Yeah, so if you can imagine this in another, even just three or four years once these plants that have been put in, I think there's about 2,000 trees that have already gone in. Once these are up high and all the sedges and rushes on the side which have been planted have grown, they will we'll have shade, which is really important, because when the tide's out and this is at its shallowest, in the middle of a summer's day, even on the coast, that water will heat up and the fish don't like that. So we're trying to create shade here, but also the rushes on the side just give them those refuges to live in. And we haven't done it yet, but there's also ideas about throwing in things like big chunks of driftwood and logs, just giving them those refuges to, to live in. We walk to the edge of the channel's dug so far and look out across a rugby pitch, because actually these two channels are just the start. So the contract for this project with CVNZ is to deliver up to another kilometre and a half of channel on top of what we've got now. So we've got basically free reign even through what's currently the rugby league fields. Yeah, especially this bit on this, you know, this first couple of hundred metres before the goalposts. That's probably where we'll take the next stage. Mm -hmm. um, that's always been a bit of a challenge of a field. It's a bit of a swamp. So, yeah, um, the council's working with the league club. They're quite happy to do their training elsewhere. They'll work on it in bite-sized chunks, says Tim. They'll dig, weed, plant, repeat, along the length of the 1.5 kilometres. But he's encouraged that even in this latest, freshly dug, still muddied channel, fish are showing up. You can see there's even fish in this oh, new bit. Do, yeah. yeah. So. Oh, there's a few of them. Yeah, you don't. They don't need much encouragement. I mean, they're so um, resilient. We we always write these things off, but I just think you just give them a home and they will come. <laughs> Thanks to Department of Conservation Ranger Tim Shaw and to Taylor Blythe from the West Coast Regional Council. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. If you already follow the show, thanks. If you don't, you can find it on your favourite podcast platform. Following it means weekly episodes will be ready and waiting for you. And if you are enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review it if you follow on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find it. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links related to this episode, plus our massive back catalogue of episodes, plus this is also where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of other great RNZ podcasts and videos too on a whole range of topics. Simply click on the Podcasts and Series tab on the main RNZ page to get amongst it. Or use your podcast app to explore by searching for RNZ. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Thank you. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.